You are listening to the sermon podcast for Salem Presbyterian Church in Winston-Salem. Thanks for listening. To learn more about our church, visit salempresws.org. That's salempresws.org. We believe preaching is best when experienced as part of the larger drama of God's people gathering. Something spiritually unique happens when God's people are together. We meet each Sunday to let the liturgy shape us, to hear preaching, and to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Join us Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. Salem. Uh, Ben's going to be preaching from John 3, verses 1 through 21. That's in the third book of the New Testament. I'll give you a chance to find that in your Bible. If you're able, please rise for the reading of the word. This is from the New Living Translation. There's a man named Nicodemus, a Jewish religious leader who's a Pharisee. After dark one evening, he came to speak with Jesus. Rabbi, he said, we all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. What do you mean, exclaimed Nicodemus? How can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? Jesus replied, I assure you, No one can enter the kingdom of God without being born with water and the Spirit. Humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. So don't be surprised when when I say you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it wants, just as you can hear the wind but can't tell where it comes from or where it is going, so you can't explain how people are born of the Spirit. How are these things possible? Nicodemus asked. Jesus replied, you're a respected Jewish teacher, and yet you don't understand these things. I assure you, we tell you what we know and have seen, and yet you won't believe our testimony. But if you don't believe me when I tell you about earthly things, how can you possibly believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ever gone to heaven and returned, but the Son of Man has come down from heaven. And as Moses lifted up the bronze stake on the pole to the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. This is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God sent his son into the world not to judge the world but to save the world through him. There is no judgment against anyone who believes in him but anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only son. And the judgment is based on this fact. God's light came into the world but people love the darkness more than the light. For their actions were evil. All who do evil hate the light, who refuse to go near it. For fear, their sins will be exposed. But those who do what is right come to the light so others can see that they are doing what God wants. This is the word of God for the people of God. All right, good evening. My name is Ben Milner, one of the pastors here, and we're looking at the Gospel of John. And uh, we're looking at people's encounters with um, eternal life. 
uh, which is a um, term that can also be translated the life of the new age or the life of the age to come or the life of the ages. And um, it's uh, the kind of life that we see in the book of Revelation at the very last chapter. It's the kind of life uh, that um, is brought from heaven uh, down to earth in the person of Christ. That when uh, it's not an energy, okay, it's not like a spiritual Red Bull, it's not a legal status, it's not a moral condition. Um, it's not a thing at all. It, eternal life is a relationship. Critical to know that. And it's not just a relation, direct relationship with Jesus either. It's not Jesus is my friend um, or I have a personal relationship with Jesus. It is the entire Trinity, the Father, Son, and Spirit uh, come down. Um, Jesus says, I, I'm no one um, knows what's in heaven except me because I've come down from heaven. So he's bringing us news from outside the fishbowl inside. He's the only one that's ever brought news from outside the fishbowl into the fishbowl we live in. So he's come from outside, and he's bringing down into this world the life of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the love they've had forever. And if you look at the front of your bulletin, there's a quote by C.S. Lewis. I read this book um, as an atheist, and I remember really specifically, I, I, I had never heard of any concept like this in my life. The Christian idea of God is completely different from any other view, including Muslim or Jewish because we believe, according to C.S. Lewis, that God is a dynamic, pulsing activity. He's not just one solitary person. He's not like a monarch. Um, he is a dynamic, pulsing activity, a life, a drama, almost a kind of a dance. And I'm going to keep coming back to the idea, the idea of a dance. Um, there's a Greek word, perichoresis, for the life between the Father, Son, and Spirit. And some people like to say perichoresis is a word that sounds somewhat like a dance. So um, it's... I think of it like a child um, that is brought, you know, a little child that's running along, and the parents grab one hand each, and they swing it up uh, into their presence and grab the child. And, and God, like, lifts us. He comes down and lifts us up into his life. And being born again, uh, to be born again, it's not like a type of Christian, like I'm a born-again Christian. Um, it's, it is what Christianity is. You're, you're born again, you're lifted up into the life of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. When I was an atheist, I did not have that life. When I became a Christian, uh, solitude was turned into uh, joy instead of loneliness. Being alone by myself, now I was in the presence of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So it is walking out of loneliness, walking out of darkness, walking out of my self-enclosed life, and walking with other people, with children of God, together into the life of the Trinity, the dance of the Trinity. And um, I love our dog. I talk about our dog all the time. And I love the fact that when our dog came to our house in a crate, uh, our dog would not come out of that crate, would not even stick his nose out of that crate, was terrified of us, was terrified of uh, coming out of the darkness. There was like a blanket over the crate. He wouldn't uh, move an inch towards us. And then over the years, just by loving this dog, uh, the dog's become almost aggressively loving. It's like we have drawn him into the life and I love that it's a dog and a human, because in the same way a human can kind of bring a dog uh, out of their dogness into humanness, uh, God brings us as humans out of our mere humanness into his divinity. And so I want to look at this idea of being born again into the life of the Trinity, and it really means two things in this story. It's coming out of darkness into the light. That's what repenting means, is like I'm going to acknowledge who I really am, that I'm helpless, that I'm a sinner, that I'm in need of God's grace, that I live in darkness, I live in the shadows. That's what Nicodemus was doing. He was living in the shadows. I want to come into the light of God's grace. That's the first thing. That's what repentance means. And you can't repent unless you believe that God loves you. You're not going to repent unless you believe God's love you. You cannot actually 
tell people the truth about yourself until you are absolutely sure that you're secure in their presence. You're just not going to do it. That's why it takes a long time with a counselor, if you're in counseling, to actually begin to reveal your heart. Because you've got to know you're safe and loved. And so we cannot repent unless we believe, that we believe that God loves us. And that's the second part. Being born again is you come out of the light, and you come out of, into the light because you know you're loved by God. And you can't come out of the light, you can't come out of the darkness into the light unless you really know you're loved by God. So, first of all, uh, repentance, coming out of the darkness into the light. Uh, Nicodemus, if you notice here, he comes uh, alone. Uh, he comes in the darkness, under the cover of darkness. He's afraid of being seen by his peers. He doesn't want his fellow members of the Sanhedrin, which are the Jewish ruling body, the 70 most important men in, in, in Jerusalem and Israel. He does not want them to know that he's there. And so he, uh, he comes by night, verse 1. He's a ruler of the Jews, it says, Nicodemus. And um, he, he is scared of the pure light of day, but he's also sick of the shadows. So he's not willing to continue to live in the shadows. He's coming out of the shadows. He's kind of in that liminal region between the the, the darkness and the light, and he's kind of sticking his nose out, like our dog did, out of the cage. He's kind of starting to come out, and maybe I'm going to enter into God's presence here. Um, and he says in verse 2, uh, thinking that he's flattering Jesus, um, you know, this would be like me talking to Tim Keller when he was alive, like some, someone I deeply admire, C.S. Lewis. So Nicodemus thinks, I'm the Tim, he's like, I'm the Tim Keller, and this little rabbi, I'm going to come to this rabbi and kind of flatter him. So he says, um, we know that you're a teacher from God or you couldn't uh, do the signs that you're doing. So he's kind of, he's kind of buttering up Jesus here. And uh, he, he's trying to flatter him and let him know that he's in the presence of another great teacher. And Jesus just will have none of it. Uh, he doesn't care ever about flattery. He, has, he is so immune to a flattery and allergic to people's uh, like praise um, that... He, uh, he just continues to be laser-focused on Nicodemus, and he just shreds all of this, uh, this nice talk. And he, he says uh, in verse 3, I mean, truly, truly is not a, a phrase we use a lot. He's basically saying, Nicodemus, this is absolutely critical for you to hear right now. So that's what truly, truly means. Uh, you have got to hear this right now. Uh, you have to be born again which in some ways is the ultimate insult to someone who's a, a, the teacher of Israel. He calls him the teacher of Israel. To be told, you are an infant. You are uh, still in the womb. You're, you're a babe. Uh, you're a babe. Uh, and not even, like, mature yet. Jesus is telling him he's got to be, he's got to start all over. And, um, and I'm sure Nicodemus was uh, taken aback thinking, um, you know, I am the teacher of the Pharisees, and the Pharisees were the group that thought they were bringing in the kingdom of God by keeping the law, by, um, by doing what Moses said to do, uh, keeping the Ten Commandments, all, the entire Torah. They thought they were bringing the kingdom. He's the teacher of Israel, and uh, Jesus says, you can't even see the kingdom unless you're born again. You're not bringing the kingdom. You, you can't even see the kingdom, verse 3. And at that point, Nicodemus kind of becomes slightly unpleasant, I would say. Um, a little bit snarky. He, I would say he's mocking Jesus' analogy uh, in verse 4. He's saying, uh, so you're saying that a 50-year-old can crawl back up into his mother's womb and come out again? Is that what you're saying? And uh, Jesus is like, it's just a metaphor. It's clearly just a metaphor. In verse 6, he's like saying, um, and I love the translation that Rob read, 
Uh, he's saying, I'm not talking about physical life, Nicodemus. I'm talking about spiritual life. Um, there's two Greek words for this. There's bios and zoe. And I'll refer to this um, throughout the sermon series. Um, C.S. Lewis talks a lot about bios, which is biological life, and zoe, which is spiritual life. And Jesus is saying, um, you should know this as a teacher of Israel. Uh, I, we're not talking about bios right now. Coming back in a mother's womb, we're talking about spiritual life. We're talking about what Ezekiel predicted, that Israel would come back to life again like a valley of dry bones, put flesh back on. God breathes his spirit into the valley of dry bones, and it becomes like a living army. That's what we're talking about, being born again into spiritual life. Because Israel was dead. And we can't just, um, we can't tweak a few things uh, or try to follow a few rules and bring life into ourselves. We can't create any, we can't like start a little fire with flint and, and start spiritual life inside of us. That's what human religions always try to do. Uh, we try to like pencil in Zoe uh, into our, you know, calendar app and um, like get in a slot. We'll put, this is where we're going to have Zoe here, you know, between uh, lunch and this two o'clock meeting, I'm going to put this time and that's where Zoe's going to be. And, uh, and Lewis, C.S. Lewis, Lewis says, we're hoping all the time that when the demands of God have been met, we will still have our little chance, some little amount of time to get on with our real life. And that's the way we think about God so often. That's the way Nicodemus thought about God. That's the way most people who are Christians and non-Christians think about God. It's like, I've got my life. God's got his life. I'm going to give him a little bit of time. It's like paying your taxes. I'm going to give him a little bit of time, and that should suffice. That should kind of get him off my back. I'll do my duty. And if I do my duty enough, then I'll get to heaven. I won't be condemned. And Jesus is saying, you cannot manage Zoe. You cannot manage the life that I'm bringing. It's a relationship. It's a dance. You get caught up in a dance. You can't dance by yourself, and you can't create a dance. You have to be drawn into the dance. I love it when churches say on their marquee, uh, revival coming next week. I mean, how, how can you schedule a revival? That's, that's by definition a work of the Holy Spirit. You cannot, um, like... The Chinese had these five-year plans and the Russians for, um, for their economic plan. They'd have a five-year plan and we're going to do, in five years we're going to be here. Like, uh, you can't do that spiritually. You can't make a five-year plan. I'm not saying it's a bad idea to try to plan and pray for things. Like, I pray for certain things to happen this year. That's great. But you cannot control spiritual renewal. You cannot control the spirit. That's why Jesus tells Nicodemus in verse 8, the wind blows where it wills. You can't even hear the sound, much less know where it's coming from or where it's going. Uh, you are about as much in charge of bringing yourself to life spiritually as you are in charge of the weather, which is none. And so all we can do, I mean, it sounds like I'm saying you can't do anything. That's not what I'm saying. The one thing you can do is to say, I am in darkness and run into the light and say, this is what's going on inside of my life. This is who I am. And I bring that, I confess that, I beg for God's mercy. Verse 21 says, whoever really loves the truth, if you sincerely love the truth and want to live as a sincere human being with integrity, with authenticity, if you really love the truth, then you will come into the light. You, are, you're will, you want your life to be exposed. Uh, people, um, you know, who, who live in darkness are people who kind of nurture and hide uh, their little, their secret sins over here. And they don't, they're not going to give them up, so they're not going to talk about them. Coming into the light is admitting, I like to hide. I want to keep my sins. 
I don't want these to be seen or touched, or else I'm going to lose control of them. So it's, it's actually not the sin itself that, is, that causes you to perish or be destroyed. Uh, it is the cover-up that's so dangerous. It's when somebody calls you on it and says, you're drinking too much, and you're like, I don't drink, or I'm not, I don't struggle with that, or you're, I, I saw you looking at porn, and they're like, no, yeah, I didn't do that. That's, I don't have that problem. That's, that's where it's dangerous. It's not, we all are going to sin, but it's that cover-up. It's when someone calls you on it and you deny it. Verse 20 says, evil hates the light and does not come to the light because it does not want to be exposed. So to use a kind of a crass analogy, being born again is like throwing open the blinds in your seedy hotel room and where you're having this affair with your secret sins and you throw open the blinds and you let the light come pouring in. Like, I want this to be seen. I want to be known. Uh, And it's very hard. It's very hard because you're opening yourself to so much exposure and you're letting go of the narrative. So often, even with repentance and confession, we try to control the narrative. You know, I'm very good at looking like I'm confessing. I'm confessing this sin over here, but I've got this huge sin over here that I'm going to hide, and by confessing this sin, nobody will ask about this sin. We do that all the time. The longer you're a Christian, you become an expert at this, especially in the Presbyterian tradition. We're really good at this. Our family, um, when our children were in our house, would have prayer at night, and um, so that we, would, we would do adoration, and then we would do confession, and then we would do thanksgiving, and then we would do uh, prayer. Um, we would ask petitions for things. But that second one, the confession, uh, I would always, like, I'd confess, like, I've been selfish today, forgive me for being impatient or irritable. And then sometimes, like, another member of the family would say, well, you didn't mention yelling at that elderly lady at Harris Teeter when you were driving behind her and, uh, like, were honking the horn and smashing um, the driving, the wheel of the car. Um, or what about, what about just five minutes ago when you're demanding everybody to come up here to pray in your timing, at your beck and call, on your schedule? I mean, we, we, we don't like to get granular. We don't like to get detailed or specific. That's when you really know you're confessing, is when you're getting specific and you're talking about what's real. So that's coming into the light. And to be born again, you have to come out of the darkness because the life of the Trinity doesn't even make sense. It's a dance. You're, you're opening yourself up to reality. I mean, God is light. In him there is no darkness. And so if you're going to come into the light, you have, to, you have to walk out of that darkness. But again, you cannot do this unless you know you're loved by God. So uh, God so loved the world uh, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him would have life and would not perish. It's so familiar that it's... Uh, we prayed before the service that, that this would not be too familiar and you would not just kind of it go right through your, your, bra- your brain, we, like one in one ear, out the, the other. Because we, we hear this all the time, I and mean, you see it at football games, John 3.16, behind the goalposts. John 3.16 is the most famous Bible verse. Um, but it's actually, this is modifying verse 15. We'll look at that in a second, but verse 15 is a very odd verse, a very strange verse. So you can't understand 16 unless you understand 14 and 15. But uh, God so loved the world. He loved the world so much in this specific way that he gave his son. Uh, The father gave the son so that whoever believes in the son would have life. And belief here is when you realize that the cross uh, is not like some random fact of ancient history. Uh, That the crucifixion of this rabbi carpenter, Jesus of Nazareth, that that event, that was the great reveal of the whole story of creation. You know, 15 billion year old story. 
The, the, the cross, that's what believing means, is that the cross is the revelation of the face of God, which is pure love, pure self-giving love, that the Father sends his Son. In the, in the face, the bloody face of his Son, we are seeing the, uh, the power, uh, the exquisite gift that is the cross. That's what, that's what believing means. It was my dad at the end of his life, just a little over half a year ago, at this table, uh, one of the last things he ever did when he got out of the house, well, pretty much the last thing he ever did when he got out of the house, he came up here uh, with his hands trembling because he was old. Um, and um, he, he told me before he took the Lord's Supper, he's like, I don't really understand what I'm doing. I don't really get the story, but I really want it to be true. And uh, I am tired of fighting my doubts. And so please give me uh, the mercy of God in that broken uh, body of Christ and that blood shed of Christ. And he, he took it. He didn't, you don't really have to know everything to have eternal life. In some ways, in some ways you're relinquishing your confidence in understanding things. Uh, the first chink in Nicodemus's armor, he only says three different things in this passage. In verse 9, the first time you begin to see that he, he's kind of beginning to uh, not lean on his own understanding. He's beginning to trust a little bit in Jesus He's beginning to decrease while Jesus increases. Uh, he says in verse 9, how can these things be? And now he's not mocking Jesus. He's truly puzzled. Like, have I maybe missed something as the teacher of Israel, as a Pharisee? Maybe, maybe this uh, young rabbi has something to teach me that I didn't get. And so in Nicodemus' life, this is where the, the old edifice begins to crumble. And the old ways of seeing things begin to come down. And that's got to happen to have faith. And um, we see his confidence in Christ grow, because in John chapter 7, verse 51, and John is very subtle about the story of Nicodemus. He doesn't connect the dots, but he just puts out these three data points and lets you connect the dots. But in John 7, 51, the next thing we see Nicodemus doing is questioning the Sanhedrin, which were the people that he put his confidence in. And when they start condemning Jesus as a criminal that deserves to die, he says, are we going to put an innocent man to death without even hearing his testimony. And that's the first sign you see he's shifting the weight of his trust uh, from the Sanhedrin and the old system uh, to Christ. Because he's, that was an incredibly brave thing to do, to even question this Sanhedrin that is so angry and so after Jesus, ready to kill him, and he questions it. And then later on after that, at the very end of the gospel, uh, you see Nicodemus spend $150,000 like a fortune. I don't even know how much money he had, but that's a huge amount of his money. He spends $150,000 on spices so that he could take the dead body of Jesus and wrap it for burial. And of course, he's identifying entirely with Jesus at that point. At that point, he would have been cast out of the Sanhedrin, out of the synagogue entirely, because he is now bearing the shame of Jesus. He loses everything by doing that. Uh, his social standing, his money, uh, his people, and he does it all to gain eternal life because he believes that the crucified Jesus is the face of God, is the revelation of God, is the life of God. So believing is when you look at this, um, this cursed, twisted human body, which seems like it is the opposite of life. I mean, it's, it's like a serpent. It is, it's disgusting, this cru the crucified body of Christ. And you say, that is my only hope in that thing that horrible-looking, twisted human body. That is my hope, that cursed thing. It says Jesus became sin for us. 
so that we could be the righteousness of God. Uh, in Exodus um, 14, 12, uh, we see that uh, Israel begins to grumble at God when God has liberated them from Egypt. He's bringing them out of darkness, and they want to go right back into darkness. And so in the wilderness, after uh, God liberates Israel as slaves from Egypt for 400 years, the Egyptians are, are performing genocide on them, and they come out into the wilderness with God, and they say, uh, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you took us out here to die? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. They want to go right back to the darkness, right back to captivity, uh, right back to the old ways. And so what God does uh, is not to wipe them out or, or send them back to Egypt, as he could have done. Rather, he sends these snakes into the camp. And the snakes begin to bite people and poison people. This is a story that Nicodemus would have known. So the snakes come out and they begin to bite people and uh, they begin to poison people. People are starting to die. They, don't, they haven't died, but they begin to get really sick as these snakes are biting them. And God is wanting them to feel the poison that is inside of them, uh, the internal poison externally by the poison that's physically going inside of them. And then God tells Moses, now make a bronze serpent and put it on a pole. Put that bronze serpent high on a pole so that everybody can see it. And when anyone looks at that cursed thing, which is their own sin, if you look at that cursed bronze serpent, then you will be healed by that. Just by looking. It doesn't even say uh, you necessarily have to believe anything, but just by looking up, just the confidence to look up at the bronze serpent, then you'll be healed. And Jesus tells Nicodemus, I'm that serpent. I mean, what a thing to identify with. He identifies with the bronze serpent. And he's saying, I'm going to drink the poison. I'm going to become your curse. I'm going to become sin itself. Verse 14, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must I be lifted up. And that's how we know that God so loved the world, because God did that. He put his son up there on that cross as an act of total self-giving love, this perfect gift for us. So Jesus is saying, when you look at me on the cross, you see both your sin and your desire to hide, your sinister nature, and you see at that very same moment all of my love that has come to heal you and to bring you out of darkness. It's like stereoscopic vision. That's how humans have depth perception. If you just cover up one eye, you don't see depth anymore. You have slightly different images in the two eyes, and those two images are merged together in your brain to create this 3D image. And the serpent is your, love, your sin and God's love, and they kind of come together, and that's the gospel. That's faith. When you see both of those things at the same time, that you're far, far worse than you ever thought. There's far more darkness in your heart than you thought. And at the same time, that is more than matched by the love of God. Those two things coming together, the darkness inside, the love outside, and that is eternal life. That's when you get eternal life. Uh, my wife um, used to tell her mom everything, immediately. As soon as something she felt she had done was sinful, as a little girl, she would just immediately tell her mom everything. Immediate confession of sin. She called her mom before she took her first drink uh, of alcohol in college. So uh, why did she tell her mom everything? Why did she want uh, her mom to know everything about her? Uh, it's the same reason um, that the serpent uh, gives us life, because she wanted her mom to know the real Margie. Uh, the, she wanted her mom to be loving the real person all the way down to the depths. When I do marriage uh, sermons, uh, I talk about Adam and Eve being naked and unashamed. They're, they totally expose themselves to one another, physically and spiritually. They look all the way down to the bottom of their souls, and they say, I love you. I know you all the way down. 
And so they are completely wide open, transparent, and yet unashamed all the way down. And you know, God's love for you would be very uncertain if he wasn't taking into account all of your sin. It'd be, I don't really know if he loves me because he doesn't really know these things about me. And so uh, that is why we have this table where it shows us, trust me, all of your sin has been taken into account. I know you top to bottom, head to toe. And he shows us our sins so kindly and gently and wrapped up in so much tenderness and love that we can actually come out of darkness and embrace his love. So it was on the night that he was betrayed. Uh, It was not on the night that we were um, loving him and flattering him and uh, coming to him for advice. Uh, It was on the night where we showed our true colors, the human race. This would have happened in any culture that he went to. It wasn't specifically about the Jewish people. It would have happened if he had come to Winston-Salem. It would have happened if he had come to anywhere in South America, Africa, or Asia. It doesn't matter where. The human race showed its true colors when it crucified God, who came to love us. And so on the night he was betrayed, when we were at our worst, he showed us the full depth of his love. And he said, this is my body broken for you. If I love you now, uh, when would I not love you? Because you've done the worst thing you've ever done. And on that very night that he was betrayed, he took uh, this cup and he poured it out. He said, this is my blood shed for you. And so whenever we eat the bread and drink from the cup, uh, we proclaim the death of Christ uh, until he comes again. So if those who are serving with me will come up here, uh, let me pray for us. Father, I pray that you would show us uh, this uh, just furious love that is pure and holy and uh, a love that knows us all the way through, a love that bore all of our sin, that absorbed it, that took it inside, um, that swallowed it up, that became sin for us. Help us to uh, come up here and want to cheer for for joy because of the liberation that you've wrought. Uh, And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So as... uh Remember, we love these rascals.